Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, God the Same and Always New. Then I put under that, distinguishing the constancy of his nature and the freshness of his dynamic reality. The reality is that God is more complex than we would like him to be, in a sense, because we want to understand him. We're glad he's complex, but we want to understand him. And there's a lot of confusion as we read various passages One of the things that people are confused about, and we have spoken of this before, is that God is the father of his people and the judge of all the earth. And Satan comes and reverses that and tells the whole world that he's their father. And then he comes and tells the children of God that he's their judge. But it's the opposite. He is the father of his people and the judge of all the earth. And then we saw in just a bulletin just a week or two ago the quote from Fulton Sheen regarding tolerance and intolerance. And he said that there's probably not anything more confusing to the average mind or misunderstood. And that in regard to people, tolerance is in regard to people, not in regard to principles. And intolerance is in regard to principles, never in regard to persons. So the idea of nuance and distinction is critical for us to understand. And the Bible is full of such teaching and examples. And so we want to grasp that ourselves, distinguishing the constancy of his nature, who God is, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever in his character and in his nature. And yet there is a freshness in his dynamic reality of how he reveals himself and what he does on a day-to-day basis in his providences in general and in your life in particular. God is more than he has revealed to us. And what he has revealed about himself is much broader, higher, deeper, richer than we realize. There is great opportunity for great confusion, and there is great opportunity for great worship. The more you understand his nature and that he is perfect and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever in his nature, and yet the dynamic freshness in which he comes to us and reveals himself to us and works in our lives every day is a pretty mind-boggling reality. We're actually going to see an example of that today, of course, in the scriptures themselves in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. The first part of this chapter was the unification of all Israel behind David as king. He is now the undisputed, recognized throughout all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. He is the king of the 12 tribes. However, the Philistines are coming against him. They're coming against the people of God. Verse 17. 
When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when he heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal-perazim and defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore he named the place Baal-perazim. They abandoned their idols there. So David and his men carried them away. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. For then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then David did, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Will you pray with me, please? God, we do praise you and thank you for your sovereignty, for your power, goodness, this wisdom that is displayed everywhere. We praise you for the picture that we see in David of looking to you, his heavenly Father, for wisdom and power and insight and direction day by day and situation by situation, even in situations that look pretty similar. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to walk by the Spirit, to pray without ceasing, to delight moment by moment in fellowship with you, our good God, that you might be glorified in every circumstance, every day. We ask, God, that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The first thing we recognize is, as we think about this nuance here, is the unchanging nature of God, the very character of God. Some of you have uh, memorized the catechism question, who is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, justice, goodness, holiness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Listen to that again. God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, goodness, Justice, holiness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Infinite meaning they can't be measured. Eternal meaning they never stop. Unchanging meaning they never fade. Those perfections are there, and they are always there. They are who he is, and they never fade. They never cease, and they can never be measured. That's who God is, and he demonstrates that. From Genesis to Revelation, he, gen he demonstrates it, of course, throughout history, including today. That is the nature of God, and we want to come to delight in that and to rejoice in that. And as we think about each of those things, Francis Chan reminds us that Isaiah 55 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways higher than your ways. 
And Francis Chan reminds us that every one of God's ways are infinitely higher than ours. And so we want to come to God and learn what he's like and bow low and worship. And then we want to cry out to the Holy Spirit that he would come and write those things on our heart. God is love. The fruit of the Spirit are aspects of who God is. God is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And some have understood that in various ways and sought to communicate that. One of my favorite ways of the reality of true love versus uh, so much of what we see today, William Shakespeare, many years ago in Sonnet 116, probably familiar to most of you, said it this way. He's talking about the reality that love is eternal or it isn't love. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark. A bark is a small, tiny boat. Whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. What a beautiful expression of the reality that love is eternal. And we see the reality that God is like that. God is like that. He says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And he insists that he's going to bring that to pass. We speak of salvation as monergistic, meaning only one person is doing the work. God is doing the work of salvation and of assembling together a people from every nation and language and tribe and every age every geography, for his son, for the glory of his son. What we see when we stop and think about it, that God's nature is eternal. And we see that all through the Bible, the examples of that. And yet the way that it manifests itself is pretty surprising. And it is part of that reality that we want to come to God and know who he is and allow him to be God. Allow God to be God. And what is remarkable in this passage in 2 Samuel 5 here is how David does that as a wonderful example for us. I want to draw your attention. Look in your text. I want to draw your attention to verse 18 and verse 22. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Verse 22. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. It's the very same place. It's the very same people. It's not the Edomites or the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Girgashites or the Hittites. It's the same people in the same valley, and God's answer is different. And we ourselves must come to learn to pray without ceasing. What a foolish mistake it would be to think that we're going to govern ourselves and our family and conduct ourselves today in the same manner that we did yesterday without calling upon God and saying, God... What is the direction for today? How is it we bring you glory in your eternal nature that never changes? And David understood that. He comes before God 
And he says, verse 19, Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up? He is mindful that he must ask of God. He must pray without ceasing. He does not go out and look and count the number of them. Maybe send some spies out, if you will, and count the number and then count his number. He's already counted the number. We saw it earlier in the previous chapter. He knows how many men he has. He doesn't just, he doesn't just count the numbers. He's looking to God because he understands that some boast in horses and some boast in chariots, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. He's praying without ceasing. Verse 18 says that it's the Philistines in both cases, but it's the Philistines who come up against them. I've mentioned to you before that the Philistines advance against Israel and they do so constantly. They are in the same manner as spiritual warfare against the kingdom of God, against the church. And the spiritual warfare, the demonic warfare against the kingdom of God comes again and again and again. And we want to be on the alert and to be praying without ceasing in every situation. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Most of you know this. If you don't, memorize it. If you know it, use it. Be anxious for nothing. David sees the army out there. And it's a very fierce army. The Philistines were certainly very fierce. Goliath was a Philistine. The Bible says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard. Guard, that's the word that God gives to Adam regarding the Garden of Eden. Guard this garden. It's the word that God takes upon himself in Psalm 121. He that guards over Israel slumbers not or sleeps. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. We have great need of that today. We ourselves need to pray. We need to know who God is. We need to know the boundaries, what what is permitted for us to do. David knows that it's permissible for him to go against uh, the Philistines in this situation. And he knows the character of God, and he prays. And we're to seek wise counsel, and then we're to act. We're to pray, we're to know who God is, know his nature. We're to know the boundaries that God has for us. And those boundaries may be different depending upon where we are in our lives. We're to seek wise counsel, and then we're to act. And David does this. In verse 20, it says in chapter 5, it says, so David came to Baal-perazim and defeated them there, the idea of breaking through. He defeated them. And he said, the Lord has broken through. So immediately, as soon as the victory comes, he immediately acknowledges this is of the Lord. He is so mindful of giving God glory. He understands that my glory I will not share with another, says the Lord. And so he is quick to give God the glory for exactly what took place there. He is a man after God's own heart. He recognized that God gave him that victory. And this is very similar to Matthew sixteen eighteen, when the Lord Christ says, The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. God's church is the size God wants God's church to be. He is, we are to go forward and proclaim the gospel, but he is advancing. He is doing what he wants to do. It's unfolding. And he is defending his people as well. In verse 21, it says, They abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. So he defeats them, they withdraw. 
and they leave their idols behind, which is interesting. It's very much like the uh, defeat of uh, Egypt before they leave. Plagues are a direct attack on the gods of Egypt to show that the god of the one true god is more of a god, is the one god, and the gods of Egypt are no god at all. It's also quite parallel to Dagon falling, if you remember. Once the ark is captured in the book of Judges, they carry it off to the temple of Dagon, but the Dagon statue falls over in front of it the first night and bows down, and the second night, after they stood it back up, he falls down again, and this time his hands and head are broken off. And so we see that the idols fall before God, and that is true still today. We delight that there is only one God. It is the God of the Bible. It is the God of creation. It is the Trinitarian God that we know and delight in. But then we see verse 22, and we see the endurance of evil, the opposition to God and his kingdom. There is an endurance or a perseverance to evil. And here it is. Now, the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out of the valley of Rephaim. Same place, same people. And we ourselves want to be thinking about this in a very real way. The temptation of Christ is recorded in Matthew chapter 4, and most people seem to think of it in that regard. It's also recorded in Luke 4. But Luke 4 has an interesting final sentence to it that is not in Matthew after Christ is tempted three times by the evil one after having fasted for 40 days of food and water. Luke 4.13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And so apparently the Philistines believed that this was an opportune time. They had been defeated by David in this very valley previously, but now it doesn't tell us exactly how much time has passed, but time has passed and they come back and the devil does that. Same people, same place, same situation. We need to, first of all, be alert to that reality that the evil one, even defeated once in our lives, will come back again and again and again. And he'll very often use similar methods, especially if he thought they were even slightly successful before. But here they are in the same place at the same time. But the beauty in verse 23 and following is that this next one is different than the one before. David does not simply assume Philistines, Valley of Rephaim, I know what I'm doing. And how critical this is for every one of us every day in so many applications. David understands and embraces and delights in his communion with God. The concept of praying without ceasing. Verse 23, when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go directly up. So God answers him this time and says, not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. So he gives them a different battle plan. Now, please keep in mind that God could have just spoken defeat to the Philistines in both cases. God could have simply sent an angel, if you recall, as he did when Sennacherib later comes against the people of God. Sennacherib comes against the people of God, and God sends an angel out in the middle of the night and kills 185,000 of them. And the soldiers of Israel don't fight at all. There are so many ways God could have done it, but the first time he allows them to fight, they do fight. They fight what we would think of kind of a more direct approach. But this time he says, no, go and circle around them this time and wait, wait, verse 24. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. So go into battle at that point. For then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. And so we see this beautiful demonstration of an altar in the method and the approach 
depending upon the circumstances, as the Spirit has led David, and very directly in this case. And David obeys. Verse 25. Then David did just did so, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines for quite a distance there. It describes a geographic region. And we see this beautiful reality that God is working in different ways. The key for that is that we ourselves would be walking in the Spirit, that we would be pleading with God. Now, keep in mind, I said God is the same yesterday, today, forever. And there are some very clear directions about what we are to be doing, what our priorities are, both gender design, both season of life and other aspects. And then there are some boundaries as to we can't go beyond. So there are, we must swim in the Bible and know those things. And those things are eternally there. However, in the application of those things within that, we pray without ceasing and plead with God as to what is this new freshness for today? How is it that today is going to unfold? And we don't assume that today is going to unfold with the same methods that it did the day before in that way. The unapproachable wisdom of God is one of the realities of his eternal nature, and yet that part is eternally fresh. The unapproachable wisdom of God is part of his eternal nature. It's unchanging, and yet as it manifests itself, it's eternally fresh in how we encounter God. Romans 11.33, after Paul, you recall, talks about the uh, gospel in Romans 1-8, through 8, and then he says, explaining all things about that, he then starts chapter 9 saying, well, then why aren't more Jews being saved? And he goes on and talks about election in great deal, a great deal of detail in 9. And then he talks about more of that in 10 and 11, about how God this has this big plan, and he's, gonna, he's got all things, he's in control, he's sovereign over it. And then after reflecting on this big plan that God has, he concludes toward the end of chapter 11 with this in verse 33, Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It doesn't mean that his nature is past finding out. He reveals his nature to us. God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, justice, goodness, holiness, and truth are eternal and unchanging and limitless. But Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. It goes on to say, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? And so we come to him as the infinitely superior counselor on a daily basis, and David so beautifully demonstrates that here. Psalm 92, verse 5 and 6 says this, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. We need to come to God and recognize that he is thinking, he is bringing things in our lives, and he's moving things around in his perfect wisdom, and we want to come to him and ask him and seek the wisdom and power of his Holy Spirit moment by moment. We see this uh, reality that God does things a little differently, and sometimes he makes it very clear and asserts it. At the end of the Gospel of John, you're familiar that Simon is being told very directly by the Lord Christ, Simon Peter, very told directly that he is going to be a martyr. And they all understand that. It's in chapter 21, verse 19. Chapter 21, verse 19. Jesus had spoken to him, to Peter. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. He's indicating you're going to be a martyr. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. 
Verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, that is John, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is not a believer and a non-believer. This isn't a man and a woman. This is two disciples of his, two men, and he has two different plans for these two men. And we must come to embrace that reality and to delight in it as we seek the leading of God, as we know the character of God, as we understand what we are charged with, what our opportunities are, and what our limits and boundaries are, to then be walking in the Spirit on a day-by-day basis. The Lord Christ does this in the New Testament, in the Gospels, as he is performing miracles. In Mark chapter 2, he simply speaks to a man and says, take up your mat and walk. He just speaks to him. And in John chapter 9, when he encounters the blind man, he makes mud and puts it on his eyes. He has a reason for making the mud, and it actually explains a little bit in the text because he is mindful that the issue of the Sabbath is going to come up. And so he makes mud publicly, and they think that's work, which it's not, but they think it is. So he has a purpose there. But nonetheless, the bottom line is he could have spoken to the blind man and healed him, but he did not. Jesus is constantly mindful of what he should be doing and in touch with his heavenly Father in his earthly ministry. The same thing is true when he calls the apostles. He calls the 12 apostles, knowing that one of them is going to apostatize. He knows that Judas is going to betray him all along. He says it several times. And then without telling anybody, it appears there's no indication in the New Testament at all, excuse me, in the Gospels, during the life of Christ, there's no indication that Christ told them he was going to call Paul. None. But he does, and he calls him very emphatically, and he clearly makes it, Paul asserts that I'm an apostle on the same level as the other 12. It's a remarkable demonstration of the freshness of God. And we can't always try to figure him out. It would have been easier for people to say, well, wait a minute, you couldn't possibly be an apostle. You weren't there with us, although the Lord Christ appeared to him and called him as an apostle. We want to look for God to be true to his nature. Look for God to be true to his nature in new, surprising, exciting, and praiseworthy ways. Look for God to be true to his nature in new, surprising, exciting, and praiseworthy ways. And not fit him into a bottle and not be disappointed. Not be disappointed when tomorrow isn't the same as today. The unfolding of God's plan and the advancing of God's kingdom are often different times in different ways. The unfolding of God's plan, the advancing of God's kingdom can be different times, different ways. And we want to embrace the providences as we walk by faith, praying without ceasing, as we see David do in this situation. There is a great freshness in God, a dynamic reality. But there's also this wonderful beyond us. I remind you that it is Anselm who said, God is that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Anselm, a very, very religious man. God is that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. And God, the highest of beings, conceives of the gospel. He conceives of the gospel as a great and, well, the greatest demonstration of his wisdom that is so beyond us. 
I want you to look at your bulletin. There is a, on the back of your bulletin is a quote here from Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is not a Christian. He's a uh, Harvard psychologist, a clinical psychologist. He's written a couple of books. He is not a Christian. It is a remarkable book. He has a book out called 12 Rules for Life, I think it is. It's a, remar- it's a New York Times bestseller. It is a very good book. It's not a Christian book. But like Aristotle, he is a man who's thinking. He's observing culture. And he recognizes that political correctness and some of the foolishness of modern gender understanding isn't helpful. He's not a conservative. He's not even a conservative in a, ultra, in a, in a strong conservative sense. He's just he's just observer of, of the world around us, of things that are working and things that aren't working, and thinking about that, thinking about humankind. But he is a student. He's a very, very serious student. He read a lot of things. Listen to what he says about the brilliance. He's not a Christian. About the brilliance of the gospel. The God of Western tradition, like so many gods, requires sacrifice. We've already examined why, but sometimes he goes even further. He demands not only sacrifice, but the sacrifice of precisely what is loved best. Well, we see that all through the Bible, in the first fruits, in the idea of the best lamb, that type thing. This is most starkly portrayed and most confusingly evident in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, beloved of God, long wanted a son, and God promised him exactly that. After many days, under the apparently impossible conditions of old age and a long, barren wife, but not so long afterward, when the miraculous-born Isaac is still a child, God turns around in an apparently barbaric fashion and demands that his most faithful servant offer his son as a sacrifice. The story ends happily. God sends an angel to stay Abraham's obedient hand and accepts a ram in Isaac's stead. That's a good thing. It doesn't really address the issue at hand. Why was God, God's going further necessary? Why does life impose such demands? We'll start our analysis of the truism, stark, self-evident, and understated. Sometimes things do not go well. That seems as much to do with the terrible nature of the world, with its plagues and its famines, and its tyrannies and its betrayals. But here's the rub. Sometimes when things are not going well, it's not the world that is the cause. The cause is instead that which is most valued. Why? Because the world is revealed through an intimate, intimate degree, through a template of your values. If the world you are seeing is not the world you want, therefore it's time to examine your values. What a remarkable statement. Listen to that again. If the world you are seeing is not the world you there want, therefore it's time to examine your values. It's time to rid yourself of your current presuppositions. It's time to let go. It might even be time to sacrifice what you love best so that you can become what you might become instead of staying who you are. That is phenomenally parallel to if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, it remains and dies. It remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Every good branch I prune, that it might bear more fruit. That's phenomenal. This is a non-Christian man looking around, thinking about these things. It's time to rid yourself of your current presuppositions. It's time to let go. It might even be time to sacrifice what you love best so that you can become what you might become 
instead of staying who you are. Something valuable giving up ensures future prosperity. Something valuable sacrificed pleases the Lord. What is valuable and best sacrificed, or at least emblematic of that? A choice cut of meat. The best animal in a flock. A most valued possession. What's above even that? Something intensely personal and painful to give up. That's symbolized, perhaps, in God's insistence on circumcision as part of Abraham's sacrificial routine. What's beyond that? What pertains more closely to the whole person rather than the part? What constitutes the ultimate sacrifice? For the gain of the ultimate prize, it's a close race between child and self. In turn, Mary's son, Christ offers himself, Christ offers himself to God and the world to betrayal, torture, and death to the very point of despair on the cross where he cries out those terrible words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the archetypical highest, the archetypical story of the man who gives all his all for the sake of the better. No greater love is a man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Who offers up his life for the advancement of being. Who allows God's will to become manifest fully within the confines of a single mortal life. This is the model for the honorable man. In Christ's case, however, as he sacrifices himself, God, his father, is simultaneously sacrificing his son. He's already said the two highest things are yourself or a child. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this non-Christian man recognizes that not only is a man laying down his life, but a father is laying down his son. It is for this reason that the Christian sacrificial drama of son and self is archetypal. It is a story at the limit where nothing more extreme, nothing greater can be imagined. Isn't that mind-boggling? You would think he had just read Anselm, that God is that being than which nothing greater can be imagined. And this great being has come up with the greatest possible sacrifice. Both Christ in himself and Christ as the Son of the Father. It is a story at the limit where nothing more extreme, nothing greater can be imagined. That's the very definition of archetypal. That's at the core of what constitutes religious. I, just, I was just blown away at the, the thoughts of people out there thinking about sacrifice and change and the reality of just what they've heard about the gospel. We ourselves need to be studying the gospel and this incredible, indescribable gift of God, this highest and best of beings, has given the highest and best that is possible. The highest and best of beings has given the highest and best that is possible in himself and in the Father giving his Son. And we celebrate that today in the Lord's Supper. What a remarkable reality that we want to contemplate and rejoice in. The passage that we read this morning from 2 Samuel 5 is repeated in 1 Chronicles 14. In the Chronicles passage, it adds one sentence at the end. It says this, Then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. The Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. We see the reality that the sacrifice of Christ 
the sacrifice of the father of giving up his sons gains the ear, it gains the attention of those who come to understand it. And the knowledge of God goes forth throughout the world as it has over the centuries. Psalm 92 says this, The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still, they will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? God, I praise you and thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon your eternal nature that does not change and the vibrant, dynamic reality that is you and the freshness moment by moment. God, help us to receive you in all your wonder and glory. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight, praying without ceasing, going out by faith daily and collecting the manna that you would have for us this day. God, I pray that you'd bless each one of us to contemplate afresh this sacrifice that we're going to celebrate now in the Lord's table. This inconceivable that God would become man and lay down his life. And yet even this pagan contemplates that it takes a trinity to perform the greatest of sacrifices that Christ might lay down his life and the Father might give up his Son. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Bless us, God, now to receive this by faith. In Christ's name, amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.